As we've done on previous Sundays, I invite you to please turn to number 144 in Hymnal the Worship Book. 144. Um, we'll sing that together immediately following the sermon. So just have that open in the seat next to you. There were two sons and a father. The older son predictably kept his nose to the grindstone and never stepped out of line. The younger was impetuous and self-centered and never seemed at peace. And so long as their father lived, he was the master of their inheritance. And when he would die, when he died, it would be divided with two-thirds going to the older brother and the remainder to the younger. But the younger son did not want to wait for the inheritance that would come with his father's death. And so he proposed that his father act as if he were already dead. He asked the father to give him his share of the inheritance. And the father did as he requested. The younger son traveled to a distant country. Maybe he needed to get away from the hard looks and harsh criticism that he inevitably got from his neighbors, every one of whom knew what he had done. He had wished his father dead. He'd broken the covenant with his father. But it was not his father who died that day. It was the selfish young man who died. With his act, he effectively cut his ties to the community and its people and was now dead to them. And so he had to go to a distant country, someplace far enough away that he could be free of such judgment, someplace he could feel alive again. And when he got there, he lit up the sky with his partying. He spent money as fast as he could on anything that could help him pretend that he was not dead, that he was alive. He blew it all, every last dime, trying to replace the hole left in the pit of his stomach when he remembered what he'd done. And you know what? It worked. It worked. As long as the money lasted, he was the man. He had no limit of friends. He laughed and played and loved and ate and drank, and it was all very, very good. Who said he was dead? Then one morning he woke up and discovered that his purse was empty. He felt no resentment, no anger, just resignation. It was over. The long, hard ride was over. He soon discovered, as cliched as it may sound, that whatever love money can buy is at best temporary. And word quickly spread that he was tapped out, that the well was dry, and so his credit dried up just as quickly. He'd earned enough good favor to live off his friends for a little while, but then the famine came and he was on his own. So he went and found work caring for some pigs. That's right. This formerly upstanding young Jew took a job working for Gentiles and with unclean animals. It's pretty much the definition of hitting bottom. The people of his village told him he was a dead man. But he didn't believe them, especially once he got far enough away and the music and laughter was loud enough to drive their voices from his head. He was alive. He was alive and proved it by doing everything he ever wanted to do and some things he'd never even heard of. He did them all because he was alive and it worked for a while. But out there in the field watching the pigs eat, he realized that his neighbors were right. All those, all those judgmental, condemning, rigid, fundamentalist friends of his old man were right. Breaking covenant with his family and village had killed him. He was a dead man. And then the story takes a turn. 
When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home even the hired men have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. And so the son gets up and walks home to make his case before his father. Richard Holloway, in his book on forgiveness, argues that at this point the son has still not repented. This decision to go home and brave whatever the community and his family have to offer remains self-serving. This decision to try his luck at home is, according to Holloway, and I quote, a characteristically opportunistic move that was designed to save his own skin, end quote. Now, that's not the way I'd learn to read the parable, but I think it's instructive because when we see the turning point as the son's coming to his senses, we can easily mistake him for the hero of the story. Or we can make his coming to his senses the moral of his story. We can make that the teaching point. The weight of the parable then falls on the awakening to reality of the son. His coming to his senses is what makes it possible for him to be welcomed home. The first saving act is his, with the Father's forgiveness and welcome being conditional on the Son's change of heart. But remember the context of this parable. It follows two other short parables about God's desperate desire to find every last lost one and bring it safely home. It is not the sheep's self-awareness that wins the day. It is not the coin's desire to be found that returns it to the woman's purse. No, it is the desire and will of the shepherd that brings the sheep safely home. It's the desire and will of the woman that brings the coin safely back into her purse. And the same holds true for our text today. What brings the prodigal home is not his decision to do so. It's the willingness of the father to run and welcome him home. Richard Holloway writes, and I'm going to quote at length because I think it's so profound. And I quote, In deciding to try his luck at home, however, the son will place himself in great danger because he must run the gauntlet of the village elders, guardians of the moral code, before he can get to his father and make his bid for rescue. According to the code which he has already abandoned, he's no longer part of the community he walked out of so contemptuously. If the elders see him enter the village, they will break an earthenware vessel over his head as a sign that he has shattered his covenant with the community and may henceforth be offered no succor, no food, no water, no shelter. He is already dead to them and they to him. The pining father sees him before anyone else and runs to meet him. This was in itself an extraordinary breach of the patriarchal code, which specified that the greater your dignity, the more slowly you moved. The strong love of the waiting father has no interest in its own dignity or status. He rushes out to meet and embrace his disgraced child. It is this abandonment of code and conditionality that is the scandalous heart of the story. The son is clearly forgiven by his father before he can get a word out. Check your text. The son is clearly forgiven before his father, by his father before he can even get a word out. And when he does produce his prepared speech, there is a significant omission. 
Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Full stop. There is no opportunistic plea for a job on the farm. This reading of the parable suggests that the father's outpouring of love caused a true change in the son so that we might say that the forgiveness that was unconditionally given actually caused the repentance that followed it, an exact reversal of the order that is followed in the usual system of conditional forgiveness, end quote. So then, as Keith suggested in his call to worship, the parable perhaps ought to be called the forgiving father, the prodigal father, not the prodigal son, because at the center of the story is a father whose forgiveness precedes the son's change of heart, a father who knows how his young son thinks, that there is going to be a price to pay, a quid pro quo, a condition that will need to be met before he can be welcomed home. The son thinks like the world, like the culture, that puts a dollar value on everything, including love and home and security. And the father knows this about the son, and so opens his arms and pulls the son to him before the son can open his mouth. That act, Holloway says, makes it possible for the son to swallow his pride. He did nothing to earn this embrace, to swallow his pride and discover that his heart was changed in the process. I have sinned and am not worthy, yet your arms are around me. In earlier times, well, perhaps still now, but in earlier times for sure, uh, my personal theology put way too much weight on me, uh, on us human beings, so that it was my act of repentance that was the condition for God's forgiveness. Our failure to repent meant that we were doomed or damned together. The first move was ours and ours alone. God may regret that, but God's hands were tied by my own failure. That's what I learned in my youth. But in this parable, I hear something older and wiser. I hear a theology that starts and ends with God's saving grace. Grace that holds us safe and secure from all alarm. Grace that trails us all the way to that distant country where we find ourselves reawakened by the grunting of the pigs. Grace that runs out to meet us and embrace us despite our worst, most self-serving reasons for returning. Grace that celebrates our homecoming in ways that makes every earthly pleasure seem like the palest dream. Grace that may seem scandalous. Scandalous to those of us who, like the older brother, never ran away in the first place. And ah, the older brother, the stand-in for those Pharisees whose complaints about Jesus' bad habit of hanging out with sinners and low lowlifes led to the three parables about being lost and found, those faithful and sincere ones who had benefited from their father's generosity and in return did everything that was expected of them and more, the nose to the grindstone firstborn children of God. They'd learned the hard way, the dangers of consorting with sinners, the dangers of flirting with life out there beyond the boundaries of their father's estate. Corruption and sin lay out there. And they were convinced of that. And idolatry was inevitable. No good Jew could eat with Gentiles. No wonder they complained and accused Jesus of being a glutton and a sinner. I mean, look who his friends were and tell me they were wrong. And so here in this third and most 
pointed telling of the tale, Jesus adds another character to the story. In the parables of the lost sheep and coin, there was the seeker and there was the lost, and then there were those who celebrated with the seeker when the lost was found. But here, another voice speaks, and it's the voice of the Pharisees. It may even be our voice. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And the slave replied, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen. For all these years, I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, when this son of yours comes back, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Oh, the anger of the righteous. But let's be honest, don't we, don't we sympathize with the older brother? Sure we do, whether we admit it or not. Because don't we still, to this very day, find ourselves resisting the extravagance of God's grace? Don't we deep down, where even we cannot find it unless the right button is pushed, don't we feel exactly the same kind of resentment and bitterness that elder brother felt? Or or maybe that's too strong. Maybe this is closer to the truth. Maybe we don't feel it quite so intensely, but... We do politely erect barriers and limits and boundaries around God's mercy because surely those people are not fit for the party. Surely those people are not deserving of the fatted calf. Surely those people have a lot more cleaning up to do before they get to wear the fancy gowns and put on the gem-encrusted rings. Surely there's more tidying up they need to do before they can be seated at the table. Surely the angels will withhold their celebrating until all the I's are dotted and the T's crossed. Well, maybe I'm wrong. I, I hope I am. I, I hope we're not so confident in our own piety and our own understanding of God's grace that we decide in advance who is worthy of it and who we may commune with and, and whose return to the fold we are willing to celebrate. But I worry about us. I do. Not so much our congregation, but, but the broader Christian community. We, we have this long history of drawing lines around God's grace, a long history of not admitting it, but behaving as if, as if we find God's extravagant welcome of sinners to be, well, theologically unsound and so suspect. A long history of assuming that it's our faith, our righteousness, our piety that has made us worthy of all of God's good gifts. And forgetting that our salvation is just as undeserved, just as miraculous as the salvation of the most prodigal of us all. Like the elder son, like the Pharisees, we may find God's willingness to drop everything and hike up his skirts and run off at the sound of some prodigal's return and then welcome that prodigal back into his home in a community and all before there is even a word of repentance spoken. We may find that kind of grace just a bit more than we can stomach. Surely there are appropriate boundaries. Surely there must be certain words spoken. Certainly there must be a complete change of heart and a sincere one too, not one provoked by a sudden downturn in fortune, not, or t- not an opportunistic, oh, well, being a servant is better than eating with the pigs kind of repentance. It's as if we expect the prodigal to do all the cleaning and pressing and tidying first and then come knocking on heaven's door. 
It's as if we get to determine in advance precisely what needs to be cleaned up and what needs letting go of and what needs holding on to before we can unfold our arms and offer our welcome. And meanwhile, our heavenly parent is dancing a jig and calling for more wine because the latest grubby, weary, worn, timid, not entirely sure about its sinner, has for a moment turned her face toward home. As Jesus says so plainly, he came for sinners, not saints. The saint-making comes later. It does come later, but only with God's help. The older brother's mistake, I think, and God bless him, was to forget that he too would be altogether lost except for the extravagant grace of his parent. He didn't earn it. He could not own it. It was a gift, undeserved, freely given. And all he needs to do in response, all he needs to do is come to the party when some other lost one comes waltzing in on God's arm. All we have to do is have the good grace to celebrate the finding of another lost one. Then the father said to him, the older brother, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Now, I don't know about you, but I am really, really grateful about this closing scene. Notice that there's no slapping of the elder son, no harsh words, no rebuke. The father simply, gently invites him to let go of his bitterness and to remember what grace feels like and to come on in and have some pie. The dead has been restored to life. The lost has been found. His brothers come home. What's not to celebrate? In my mind's eye, I see the father outside the house tugging on this, his poor, earnest, faithful older son's sleeve. And I see the younger one inside and, and wanting to fully enter into the party, but, but being held back by his, his fear of his older brother. And I see the parent once again tug on that sleeve. And I see the older brother begin to weep and throw himself on his father. And I see the father wrap his arms around him and whisper words of extravagant love in his dear, faithful son's ear. I see them start walking back into the house. I hear music and and the call for more wine. Let the whole family rejoice. Some Pharisees wanted to know how Jesus could justify his love of sinners. They wanted to know how he dared call himself a teacher and a good Jew while hanging around with religious outcasts. They wanted to know why he did not recognize the appropriate boundaries of pious society. They wanted to know why he did not join them in demanding that sinners, sinners stop being sinners before he'd have anything to do with them. And in response, Jesus told some stories, stories that still surprise us and perhaps even scandalize us all these centuries later, stories of a God who will go to any lengths to seek and to save that which is lost, stories of a God who's ready to drop everything and hike up the divine skirts Take off running at even the slightest hint that another lost one is on the way home. Sisters and brothers, as we follow after Jesus this Lenten season, let's take some time right here and now to contemplate the extravagance of God's grace. An extravagance that is not simply reflected 
in the suffering and death of God made flesh, in God's willingness to do the unspeakable to save us, but an extravagance that's also revealed in the unimaginable grace God offers to us while we are still sinners, a grace revealed in that joyful image given to us by Jesus himself, God running across the fields to be the first one to embrace the lost one and welcome us home. Let us hold on to that image as we continue our Lenten journey. And so feel God's arms around us, prodigals all, and hear the music of the angels welcoming us home. Let's put the pigsty behind us, put away our pride, and turn our faces toward home. And if we did all that a long time ago, well then let's remember what it felt like. Let's remember what it felt like to have God come running out to meet us and give thanks for God's extravagant grace. And may that same graceful God, may that same graceful God help us to let go of whatever need we may have to try and contain or domesticate or otherwise limit the extravagant grace of God. Because truth be told, we can't do it, no matter how hard we try. The most we can do is fold our arms and go all rigid and refuse to attend the party. And really, is that what we want to do? I mean, God, the angels, and the lost ones are busy dancing the night away. Do we really want to stay outside and feel sorry for ourselves? Jesus offers us the invitation. Sinners and would-be saints, angels, and even our heavenly parent are already celebrating. So come on. Let's go on and join the party. What do you say? Amen.